Invitation is on page 423. There we go. Good morning. I, too, would like to welcome everyone out to the services this morning, especially like to, to welcome any visitors that we may have with us. We hope that you enjoyed the donuts this morning. And, of course, the good news is we also get to eat lunch once I'm done talking. So we'll get started this morning. We, uh, we want to thank Brad for the song service this morning. I was telling him before I got up here, that's my favorite song, and it certainly makes my job a whole lot easier following that song. I hope and pray that what I've studied this morning, what I'm going to present to you this morning, is, is both edifying and beneficial to each of us here. This morning, we're going to discuss a topic of extreme importance in today's society, of extreme importance in the Christian community, and quite frankly, a topic that we feel could never apply to us. But oftentimes, the way we lead our lives, the way we conduct ourselves, lead us down the very path that we're going to discuss this morning. If you'd like to open with me, our theme text is going to be in the book of Romans. We're going to start out in Romans, the first chapter. You'll recall that Romans was written by Paul, and it is his full declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those at Rome. Paul had not visited Rome at this point, was in Corinth on his third missionary journey. Historically, around 57 AD is when this letter comes in. Romans is a book delivered by Paul to both the Jew and the Greek at Rome. And he's going to speak it both, to both at different points. Romans 1, he's going to speak to the Greek or Gentile, and that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Romans 2, to the Jews. And Romans 3, asking essentially the difference or if there's an, an advantage being a Jew, but still concluding that rather the Jew and the Gentile are still in sin. So let's pick up in the book of Romans in the first chapter, starting in verse 16. We're going to start out in verse 16, and the verses are on the screen in front of you, or you can follow along. Verse 16, this is the theme for the whole book of Romans. Paul says this, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it to them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You know, just stopping here for a quick moment. A lot of people ask a very hypothetical or what they consider to be a hypothetical question that's summed up as essentially, what if someone had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? What if no one ever shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone? Is God justified? Or a better representation in simpler words, is it fair for God to take vengeance on their soul if they never heard the truth? And Paul answers this question or this idea or concept in verse 19 and 20. Basically saying that we as humans, we have seen the design of the universe. We've looked outside, we've seen the stars. And the invisible things of the creation are clearly seen all around us. Meaning that you and I as humans should look all around us, see these things that exist, and that they exist because of a creator. And understanding that has a twofold implication, and the other side being we are without excuse in the sight of God. Very plainly stated, because we can see the creation around us, we should know there's a God. And to turn from that knowledge leaves us no excuse 
And God is justified in taking wrath on our souls. Picking up back in verse 21, <clears throat> Paul keeps up with this. He says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up into vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the one, burned in their lust toward one another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error that was meet. Verse 28, and even as God, or even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. I want to look at that ending verse this morning in our theme text. Paul says he gave them over to reprobate mind. Gave them over to reprobate mind. And the next thing we can do logically this morning is simply ask, what is a reprobate mind? How do I know if I'm falling in or guiding myself towards a reprobate mind? And if I am drifting into this idea of having a reprobate mind, what do I need to do to get out of it? So the first thing we're going to discuss this morning is very simply, what is a reprobate mind? And what are the characteristics of someone with a reprobate mind? The word reprobate is found in the King James Version and many different passages and many different contexts in those passages. The word reprobate is translated in the book of Romans as the word adokimos, and that is Strong's G96. And that word adokimos is translated in the KJV six times as the word reprobate we're studying this morning. One time is the word castaway, and one time is the phrase one who is rejected. The definition having an implication is meaning being worthless and not approved by God. In very simple terms that we're going to use for the purpose of the study this morning, it is simply having a mind that is morally depraved or an unprincipled mind. Essentially a mind that does not seek God and willingly chooses to go against God. Put under that light, it's a little scarier, isn't it? And you may say, well, Ethan, I don't know what you're talking about. There is no way I could ever have a reprobate mind. There's no way this could be a description of my mind and my life. But oftentimes in our lives and throughout the, throughout the days, we fall into this idea, don't we? We begin to be morally depraved. We see things that are going on in this world, maybe not in our own homes, but maybe it is in our own homes, and we start to justify sin, don't we? We see sin and we start to elevate sin and the pleasure of sin above pleasing and following God. The daily temptations start to roll in on Monday morning. We look at that temptation, that awesome cookie we talked about a few weeks ago, and we start to reason and try to justify sin. In other words, we have a mind that knows something is wrong, knows something is sin, and we choose to do it anyway. We justify that sin and we have pleasure in doing so. So let's take a few minutes this morning discussing the warning signs or symptoms of a reprobate or depraved mind. And these verses are going to come straight from the book of Romans chapter 1, in case you were wondering why we read 12 verses to get one phrase. So let's take a look back at our theme passage of the morning and walk our way through Paul's description of the Gentiles. 
Verse 18, Paul says this. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. This is our first characteristic of a reprobate mind. An individual or a mind for the purpose of the study that holds the truth in unrighteousness. But what's Paul describing here? One who holds the truth of the word of God in unrighteousness. Very simply stated, and every time I think about this verse, I feel there's a spotlight right on top of me. But simply stated, holding the truth in unrighteousness means we are not living what we claim as truth. Modern day terminology, we aren't practicing what we preach. We aren't performing our duty as man to obey God and keep his commandments. And this is a description of our life sometime, isn't it? You know, something I hate to admit, I get up here all the time, speak 30 to 45 minutes about spreading the gospel. Talk about the importance of sharing the gospel and what that gospel could mean for that soul in front of you. You ever looked at a person, one of God's creation, and for whatever reason you didn't feel like sharing the gospel with them? Seeing and claiming that pearl of great price but not sharing it with others? Because I have. That's holding the truth and unrighteousness. Knowing that the truth and your duty as a Christian is to share the gospel with every creature and choosing not to do so, not to obey that calling, is holding the truth and unrighteousness. Maybe it's in our duties as Christian parents and Christian husbands and wives. Do you know what God requires of you as a godly husband and father? Knowing the things that you should be doing, leading your household, being a godly husband, raising children up in the Lord, and choosing not to do it? That's holding the truth and unrighteousness. And I could go on and on providing example after example of this concept, but it's when we see these things going on in our lives. It's when we know the truth and claim to live the truth and don't implement it into our lives that we're holding the truth and unrighteousness. And that's a huge tell-it-all sign of a developing reprobate mind as described by Paul in the book of Romans. Our second description we're going to have of a reprobate mind is found in the 21st verse of Romans. And we're skipping around some, but the 21st verse of Romans says this. It says, Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. The context here, speaking specifically of the Gentiles of the time, who understood the creation and understood the creation's implication on their life, like we talked about a few minutes ago. In other words, they knew that God was there and chose not to worship Him as God. And I don't believe that describes any of us here this morning, or else you wouldn't be in an assembly worshiping God. But I wanted to mention it this morning because this is a characteristic of a reprobate mind in a more condemning sense. To refuse to give glory to God as the creator of all things, and to refuse to give glory to Him as the Almighty is to have a reprobate mind. And the sad thing is, everyone on this planet has enough God-given common sense to understand that the things around us could not have magically appeared. And that something had to create them. So Paul is more so speaking to those who choose not to give credit to an almighty God as the creator of all things. But what I want us to glean from this verse this morning is the second sign of developing or leaning towards a reprobate mind is not having thankfulness and recognizing God as the bringer of all good things in our life. How many times this week have you paused and thanked God for the blessings in your life? For the cars that you drive, for the houses that you have? Have you thanked God for your spouse this week? Thank them for your children. Thank them for the very life that you have, the free will and capability to think your own thoughts, the very capability to be unthankful. 
I'm reminded of a story found in Luke, the seventh chapter. If you want to turn there with me, Luke, the seventh chapter, we're going to start in the 36th verse. Luke's going to record this. He says, And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman that is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus saying unto Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil that it is not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they, they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. You see, this story is a pretty powerful story of thankfulness, isn't it? It has a parable inside of it. You see, Jesus walks into Simon's house and he's met by who is literally described as a prostitute. This is the town prostitute, and she confronts Jesus to begin worshiping him and thanking him. She drops to her feet and begins to cry, and she's dropping a whole lot of tears on his feet. And I've always found this next part to be painfully humbling. It says, The prostitute reaches down to the feet of our Lord and Savior, and with her own hair, wipes his feet. That, brothers and sisters, is thankfulness. To be so overwhelmingly grateful to be in such all of your Lord and Savior, you could wipe his feet with your hair because you've cried so much. But that story is twofold. We have a comparison, don't we? We also have this Pharisee named Simon who's speaking of Jesus inside himself. He doesn't literally say this out loud. He says, surely Jesus knows who this is. This lady's everywhere around the city. Modern day language, this girl's on every street corner. Surely he knows what a horrible person this is. And Jesus turns to him speaking about the sinner woman, says in a Texas language, we've got to have a little chat. And he gives Simon this question about which one would have been more grateful, and obviously Simon answers correctly. But then Christ turns back to this prostitute in front of all these well-known Pharisees, in front of all this wealth, and speaks to her. He's looking this prostitute right in the eye, but he's still speaking to Simon. And Christ speaking to Simon says, I came into your house, to your place, and you gave me no water to simply wash my feet. But this woman, this prostitute, gave her tears. And Simon, you couldn't even bring me oil to anoint my head, but this woman, this prostitute in front of me anointed my feet with alabaster ointment. Simon, you couldn't do any of these things for me, but this sinner woman, this prostitute could. 
And you can imagine the look on Simon's face. Simon was a man of reputation. Simon was a well-known Pharisee. He wasn't about to wash the feet of Jesus. But the sinner woman was. You see, that story is twofold. But we somehow fall into both sides of the story, don't we? We as humans come to Jesus. We come to Him broken. We come to Him torn, full of sin, and seek a forgiveness and seek a mercy that we do not deserve. Seek a grace that can't be obtained by anything of our own design. We receive that mercy, that grace, that forgiveness we long for. That forgiveness that saves. And we'll fall down to our knees and praise God for that plan of salvation. Brothers and sisters, as much as we hate to hear it in 2021, we are that sinner woman. We are the prostitute in that story. We're the debtor that owes all and is forgiven all as Christians. But you know what the crazy part is? We are that sinner woman, but we act like Simon. We act like nothing's been given or done for us, don't we? We praise ourselves for our accomplishments. We elevate our own capabilities and our own self over God. And brothers and sisters, that is unthankfulness. What we should have is the mind of the sinner woman. What we should be doing is praising and thanking God through the thick and the thin. Praising him when we're at our low like the prostitute in the story. Falling on our knees in submission to Christ. Crying out with all of our being. And thanking God when we're at our high points. When you find that person you'll spend the rest of your life with. When you have your first child, first grandchild. When you get that job offer after being laid off for three months. But for some reason, even as Christians, we fail to praise the one who freely gives us all thanks. And we become Simon. And that is a reprobate mind. The last warning sign that we're going to look at this morning before we move on of a depraved or reprobate mind is found in the end of the first chapter of Romans. We're going to be in verse 29 is where we're going to start, and we're going to finish out that chapter. Verse 29 says, Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, and whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. I've always found that interesting. Disobedient to parents is listed in the same verse as haters of God. Without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affliction, and placeable unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Paul says those who know the punishment for sin not only do that sin, but have pleasure in it. And I want to make this very simple for us this morning and describe this concept in the phrase, sin no longer affects us as Christians. And I'll say that again, sin no longer affects us as Christians. And I want to explain to you what I mean by that. You see, what Paul is describing here is a person who chooses to sin and not only chooses to do that sin, but has pleasure in that sin. So either that person, number one, doesn't believe it's a sin in the first place, or number two, straight up doesn't care that it's a sin and enjoys it anyway. You see, when we sin as Christians, we sin against God. And you know, when, we, when you sin, and I know when I sin, you start to feel bad inside. You get this feeling of guilt, or at least you should. You get disappointed in yourself. You feel as though you've let down God, spat on the sacrifice of Christ. It's a terrible feeling when we know we gave in to that temptation and sinned. But brothers and sisters, who Paul is describing here as someone who is tempted, who sins, but unlike the Christian, feels no remorse. You and I both know sin is pleasurable. If sin wasn't pleasurable, then what would be the point in sinning? 
And likewise, what would be the need for Jesus if sin didn't occur? So we understand that sin is pleasurable, but who, is, who Paul is describing here is someone who keeps sinning and no longer feels the weight or the guilt or remorse and is no longer repentful of that sin. And what this accurately describes, brethren, is the fundamental difference between sinning and living in sin. If you've ever wondered, how do I know if I'm just struggling with temptations, giving in to sin a whole lot, or if I'm living a life away from God, it's that sin no longer affects you and you're no longer repentful of sin. And I don't mean that it's okay to sin a lot as long as we repent and ask for forgiveness. Paul covers that in Romans 6. But in context of a reprobate mind, living in sin is when sin no longer affects you. And you no longer consider the damage and the hurt that you've done to God. And you focus only on the worldly pleasure. And this is a huge issue in today's society, isn't it? Not only on an individual level, but also on a moral and societal level. We downplay the eternal consequences of a life full of sin, don't we? And not only that, but we elevate people around us who sin. We become tolerant to sin and we boast about how accepting we are of sin. I'm reminded of Paul's correction to the church at Corinth when faced with this same fundamental issue. 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1. We're only going to read two verses here, so if you just want to look up with me. Paul says this. He said, It's reported commonly among you that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as mentioned among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. That word fornication there written in the first verse is translated from the Greek word porneia, and that's Strong's G4202. And that is translated into the KJV as sexual immorality or sexual relations of an illicit nature all 26 times it's found. And it is often translated in a plural type sense. Meaning very simply, this is an ongoing sexual relationship of of an immoral nature. Whereas the immorality come in, Paul answers that, that a man should have his father's wife. So modern day language, we have a man who is in an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmother, is what Paul is describing here happening at the church at Corinth. And yes, we can all agree that this is a huge problem for the church at Corinth. This is an even bigger problem for the parties involved in the sin, But what I want you to notice this morning is who Paul shifts the focus to in the second verse. Paul says, and ye. The ye there being the church at Corinth are puffed up. And have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you. So once again, we can agree that that sin is awful. That sin's not good in any sense of the word. But the reason for Paul's writing is because not only did the church at Corinth allow this to continue... But the people there were proud and puffed up and boastful about it. And what I mean by boastful is that the church was boastful about how accepting they were of that sin that was obviously going on in their church. I imagine them showing the community around them and teaching how accepting the church at Corinth was of this sin. Look at us. And Paul's going to go on to correct that problem. Eric talked on that a few weeks ago if you're interested. But what I want us to glean from the passage this morning is that simply while the sin was a major concern, it was an issue, Paul chose to emphasize the mindset rather than the sin itself. And I'll say it again, Paul placed emphasis on the mindset rather than the sin itself. You see, the issue boils down to the fact that sin had lost its effect on the church at Corinth. Not only were they accepting of the sin, but also boasted in the fact that they were accepting of the sin. And brethren, that is a warning sign of a reprobate mind. When sin no longer affects us and we become accepting 
or tolerant of sin. So far this morning, we've discussed the idea of a reprobate mind and three warning signs or three concepts that may indicate you're leaning towards that path. Number one, holding the truth and unrighteousness. Number two, having an unthankful and ungrateful spirit. And number three, Paul ended with sin no longer affects us, so we become accepting or tolerant of sin. But left for us this morning is the question of how do we ensure as Christians that our minds do not become reprobate? Ethan, how do I ensure that my mind stays pure in the sight of God and that my actions don't match the actions found in the first letter of Romans? I believe that the first thing we must do as Christians to ensure that we don't fall into this reprobate mind is simply the counter to Paul's first point. And that counter is to hold the truth in righteousness. To hold the truth in righteousness is to put the truth and put God first in our lives. And this goes for every sense and every single part of our lives. Very simply put, we need to strive to do those things that God set forth for us as Christians to be doing. Like we talked about earlier, this applies to every aspect of our lives and requires full sacrifice. James 1 verse 22 says, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But oftentimes, as Christians, we're like the rich man found in the 19th chapter of Matthew, aren't we? Matthew 19, starting in verse 16, says, And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell all that thou hast, and give to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see, Jesus gives us as Christians the keys to eternal life. Jesus gives us the very thing that we cannot obtain on our own. And all he asks is that we fear God and keep his commandments. And we can't even do that half the time. We are the rich young man. We have everything. We have the truth. But we can't do the things that we know we should be doing. To hold the truth in righteousness is to sell all that we have. In other words, to hold the truth in righteousness is to submit to God and be doers of the word and not hearers only. I believe the second thing that we need to do as Christians to ensure we do not develop or fall into a reprobate mind is to have a thankful heart and exhibit humility. And that's a huge problem in in today's world, isn't it? To remain humble and be thankful. More than thankful, thankful specifically to the one who blesses us with all things. The world we live in today is a me-first society. A world that forces my needs and my wants above others. And it's more common in our lives, in our families, and even in our own marriages than we think. We fall into this trap of believing the things that we have in our life are there and that everything we have came from something I did to gain them. We feel that we were the ones who gained the money that allowed us to build that $100,000 house. We feel that it was our money that allows us to have the things that we need in this life. And I'll agree with you. 
working hard and making money allows you to have access to nice things. And I don't think the good Lord would disagree with that. But oftentimes as Christians and as self-righteous humans, we forget who gave us the hands to be able to do that work. We forget who put the very mind together in us that allows us to obtain degrees to be able to use those hands that God also gave us. To try to think that you alone are the reason for your success is futile. And it's a problem with being prideful rather than humble. Romans 12 verse 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, I skipped a slide there. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God, God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. James 4, 6, and 7 says this. It says, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit therefore yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You see, to drive ourselves from having reprobate minds, we need to have thankful hearts and humble spirits. But I want us to notice something as we move into our final point in the morning. In both the scripture from Romans the 12th chapter and James the 4th chapter, there's an idea that both the Apostle Paul and James connect to this idea of having a humble spirit. Paul says in Romans to present your bodies a living sacrifice, and James says to submit yourselves therefore to God. So in the same context of humility, James and Paul both bring in the idea of submission and sacrifice. And I don't think either one of those is a coincidence, but rather something we should be connecting. And that's our final point of the morning. The greatest method to ensure you do not develop a reprobate mind is to have a mind of submission and a mind of sacrifice. Philippians, 5, or Philippians 2 Verse 5 says this, it says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. So we have Paul, the same author of the Roman letter, the very same guy who's describing this idea of a reprobate mind, now telling the church at Philippi, this is the mind that you should have. Not a reprobate mind, not a mind that seeks to serve self, but the mind that is also in Jesus. Speaking of Christ, Paul says this. He says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And there's our two concluding points this morning, isn't it? Christ humbled himself and became obedient to death. In other words, was submissive to God. In verse 9, because of that, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. It's a beautiful passage, isn't it? A passage that shows us exactly the mind that we should have, the exact opposite of a reprobate mind, the mind of Christ. Paul charges the church at Philippi to have the mind of Christ, and I'll charge you this morning to the Christians at La Prada Drive to have the mind of our Lord and Savior. But what is the mind of Christ? What does it mean to have the mind of Christ? Paul lists multiple things. He said he made himself of no reputation, said he humbled himself, that he took himself upon the form of a servant, and then he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You know what Paul really means here? Is that Christ himself submitted to God. 
and was obedient to death. So you asked this morning, what does it mean to have the mind of a Christian? What does it mean to have the mind of Christ? To get away from a reprobate mind, and the answer is simple. To have a mind of submission to God. That is what Paul said to the church at Philippi, and brothers and sisters, it is still true today. C.S. Lewis once said, Fallen man is not, a, not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement, but a rebel who must lay down his arms. Laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you're sorry, realizing that you've been on the wrong track and getting ready to start life over again from the ground floor. That is the only way out of a hole. This process of surrender, this movement full speed astern, is repentance. You asked this morning why being submissive is important. And I believe fully submitting to God, leaning on Him for guidance, trusting in Him and doing the things that He requires of us to do, having repentance in our hearts for the sins that we commit is the foolproof way to stay away from a reprobate mind. This idea is perfectly summed up in a song that we've seen quite a bit here. It's number 426, Break My Heart. Brad's about to lead it. It says, Break my heart, dear Lord. Tear the barriers down. Show me with convicting tears the glory of your crown. My heart is hard, my soul so weak, the ways of evil cut so deep. I need you, Lord, to come inside and gently break my heart. My sin is great, but I can see the glory set for me. Show me, Father, where to start and gently break my heart. You see, asking God to show us where to start and to break our hearts, brothers and sisters, is to submit to God and to submit to His plan for salvation. And to break our hearts is to sacrifice and deny self like Zach talked about a few weeks ago. And to break our hearts is to praise and worship God. This morning, maybe you feel that some of the things we've talked about represent your mindset. Maybe you feel sin isn't affecting you the way it should. Maybe you're not repenting of sin. Maybe you've been living in sin. Maybe you haven't been grateful to God for all the blessings in your life. This morning is the perfect time to come forward and our elders can assist you with that. Maybe you're here this morning and you realize that you have a reprobate mind, but you've never submitted to God. You've never opened that free gift of grace and salvation He extends to each of us. And brethren, now is the time to open that gift, and I can't open it for you. Now is the time of salvation. To walk away this morning would be a foolish thing to do. If we can help you in any way, please come forward as we stand and as we sing. Great mind.